This week on Writers Inc. I struggled when I was first trying to write fiction. I'd written a couple nonfiction books, watching, you know, Law and Order in the background late at night when the kids and my husband were in bed. But, but with fiction, I, I, I really struggled at first. And a lot of it for me was figuring out when I wrote best and how I wrote best. I discovered that even though I was a night owl, I wrote fiction best in the morning, which was kind of scary because it meant, okay, you're gonna go to bed late, you're gonna get up early. But that made a huge difference. And and really a lot of it is just finding that, that writer's cocktail, what works best for you. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, this is Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. Um, it's a bad day to be on TikTok if you live in Montana. You guys heard this? <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> so I, I have no idea how they're going to enforce something like this, but apparently the entire state of Montana just banned TikTok. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't even know that was a possibility. Like, I didn't know you could do that, like, unless you're maybe China. But. Yeah, I don't see how that's enforceable. I guess, well, no, I don't see how it's, they'd have, there's some pretty major things they're going to have to do uh, from an IP level that would just flat out violate a lot of people's uh, rights. So there's, I don't see how that's even possible. <laughs> the only thing I could see is if you worked for the state of Montana, if you yeah. had a work phone. Government you know, they could offices, the, sure. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, yeah, no, this, good luck. From, this one's everybody. It's not just the government yep. employees. And from what I read, the like fines go to the service that um, is allowing it to download, not the actual individual. So, I mean, it's dumb, but at least they're not attacking individual people <laughs> because that would be worse. Yeah. TikTok police freeze. <laughs> so they'd have to block it at the IP level or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Uh, lawsuit <laughs> incoming, I believe. I, and I'm not even a fan yep. of TikTok, but I, I'm, I, I, I don't, like, I just don't just see get this get a sticking. VPN? Like, you know, I'm always in New York, even when I'm never in New York. So, right. No. There, there was talk about um, individuals. I don't know if this was for Montana or not, but when they were talking about the nationwide ban, there was talk about individuals with the VPN getting fined personally because they're using a VPN. So... <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. We can talk about that sometime. There's a, a push. Yeah, I don't want to get into it. It's very tin, tinfoil hat. Welcome to Politics Inc. <laughs> it, it, would get, it would get ugly real fast. So let's, yeah, let's just move along. Go, go USA, free speech. Yay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like pa- Patrick's got that American flag behind him. You're going to have to start hiding that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get a get a knock on the door. Make sure you can get that in a drawer real quick. It's gonna be <laughs> bars and stripes. Yes, bars exactly. <laughs> oh man! All right. Anything exciting going on with anybody before we start the news? Uh, you know, I've been uh, playing around on Substack. I, I I just started a Substack, which has proven to be really interesting and uh, a very good. I didn't know what Substack really was. I'll be honest with you. Until I I, I kind of had a whole conversation with um, Johnny Truant. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago and uh it's a my my interpretation of it is it's sort of a blogging platform meets newsletter mm-hmm. platform mm-hmm. uh i just started to just to test it out I, I didn't need a newsletter platform but it's it's actually gotten me quite a few subscriptions and you know i'm, I'm seeing a lot of engagement so uh we'll see i've only got two posts in but i'm pretty impressed by it so far so, now, yeah. are you paying anything for that, Kevin? No, you don't pay a thing. And you can actually set your content to be monetized. I have mine set for free. Um, and I'm thinking about way, con- the types of content I might monetize uh, later. I've already, I've already had several people because people can pledge yeah, without me even asking. They've pledged money and saying, like, I'll pay $80 a year if, if you uh, 
monetize. Uh, so there are people who are who are saying they'd be willing to pay for some of that content. That's a that's a good position to be in as a writer. <laughs> Yeah. Now I remember mm. just enough about this to be not useful at all. So hopefully someone else will remember. But I remember there was something about Substack about visibility that it had to be monetized because I remember looking into it a while ago. I don't know if anyone else remembers more about this. Yeah, I don't. No. Uh, I don't okay. know anything. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm brand new on it and just sort of starting to dig in. And if they have like that's a rule, then I'm breaking it right now. But I will say, I don't maybe, think it maybe was maybe a rule. A I just period. think it was like favoritism or something, but I can't remember Which enough about it. I can totally to see because the all. only way they're making money is if I am monetizing. They get 10% of uh, whatever I, I charge. Um, but I, at two posts in, I'm not prepared to start trying to charge people for this. I think I would just sit in a lonely little corner for a while. But who yeah. knows? Maybe I'd, Maybe I'm missing out on millions of dollars. I don't know. We'll, we'll see in a few weeks. I'm, I'm looking to monetize in a few weeks. So how does the monetary side work again? So you're posting right now, anybody can look at it. And if they decide to pay you for looking at it, they can. But no, they it's a, it would be a subscription kind of thing. So you can, you can make posts either available for everyone outside of the paywall or put them behind the paywall. Um, so, and then you can set what price you're willing to ask. Like I could set it all the way down to like a buck if I want. Um, I think, I think, I mean, I, I know it can set it below the minimum that they suggest. And then you have the option of offering like a, an annual rate, uh, usually at a discount and, uh, a founder's rate, which you know, could be any amount above the annual rate. And that one, you know, you can, it's, it works a little bit like Patreon where you can offer, you know, tiered options. Like, Hey, if you do this, you pay this, if you pay annually, you get this, uh, I have to figure out what those offers would be and whether I'm w- willing to put the time and energy into doing it regularly. Uh, but I, you know, I'm enjoying the platform so far. I mean, I, it's it's lacking a few things format wise that I wish it had. Uh, but is in terms of engagement, like I before I'd even posted content, I was already getting new subscribers. And you own the list, you own your mailing list. So uh, I imported my existing list in order to use that. And I've already gained like, you know, around a thousand new uh, subscribers just in two posts. So cool. pretty good tool for writers. I, 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 I haven't found a downside yet, so don't, don't rush out to do it uh, on Kevin's word. But I mean, I, so far I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm seeing some benefit from it. Not, not to be a buzzkill, but did you read the terms of service? <clears throat> yeah, I read, <laughs> do, I, do, I always read do, the terms do you know, of service. Do you, who, who actually owns the content? Because I know well, on, you on, own, Patreon, what, on Patreon, on Patreon, Wattpad, and sites yeah. like that, they they actually own the content. No, according to their terms of service, you own what you produce. It's entirely aimed at you. You can even export it, take it back to your blog if you want. Um, you know, all that content belongs to you. All the everything you're doing, it's it's effectively it's a newsletter service with a public face. Is the way they've built it. Now, if will it stay that way? I mean, it feels like early days to me for uh, for the service. I feel like it's still in development. There's still features that could be implemented, and uh, who knows if it's doing really well? Amazon will probably buy it or something. Uh, that's a rumor, not truth. So don't don't quote me on that. Uh, but uh, right now, everything is pretty geared towards writers. I mean, it's it's a very writer centric platform. In, in my take, you can also do podcasts and videos and things like that on that platform. So they're aiming at a content creation crowd. Cool. All right, JP, what's in the news? All right. Uh, KDP printing costs are going to change June 20th of this year. Uh, so KDP will be increasing pricing or printing fees uh, for paperback and hardcover. And this will be effective June 20th. Uh, the claim is due to rising costs of materials, suppliers, labor, etc. Um, new fee structure includes higher fixed costs for all books uh, and an added um, fixed and per page cost for books with large trim sizes. Uh, so. It will, in fact, uh, it will impact author royalties. So you may need to consider adjusting your list prices if you're self-pub. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> they'll eventually yeah. have a um, printing cost and royalty calculator in the next coming weeks. Uh, I've heard from a couple people that they've seen changes from as small as roughly 30 cent difference to a couple dollar difference, which uh, is pretty big. Uh, so yeah. uh 
something you definitely need to check. There is yeah. something going on with Amazon. There are so many <laughs> shenanigans <laughs> happening that are Amazon centric right now. I, I, I don't even know where to start, but this is just one more in, in the growing list. I'm, I'm hoping this is just related, you know, like Bezos stepped down. He's got some, you know, somebody else is running the ship over there. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is just, you know, somebody new to the job that's just like, let's do this, 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 and this, and this, and, and, and they're going to calm, calm down. <laughs> like I, I hope <laughs> yeah. at, at some point. Um, but there, there's a, there is a lot of weirdness going on. I'm not surprised everything's going up. You can't buy a stick of butter before you need a small loan. I mean, it's crazy. So it's business. You could go vegan. <laughs> how, how many of you actually check your... <laughs> How many of you actually check your prices on these kind of things on a regular basis? Not on a regular bother. basis. I, mm. I mean, I'm going to go in and check on this. And, you know, yep. if your book is $9.99, you might have to put it up to $10.24 or something. It takes about two days for the change to happen. So, and, um, you know, been looking into it. It doesn't look like the pricing change will affect algorithms or anything. So that's good news. But, yeah. I, uh, I, I gauge the market price you know not not the not my cost on those things because it doesn't do me any good if i'm if i'm aiming to try to make you know a, a, a specific amount of royalties each month it won't do me any good if nobody's willing to buy the book because of the price so i price my book according to how the market is is treating mm -hmm. that genre so yeah. as long as i'm not losing money we're good but i may you know for years i only made like 30 cents per per print book because yeah. <laughs> I wanted to keep the price, you know, competitive and, uh, you know, it may go back to that. I've, I've got, I set up reminders about a year ago, um, just to go through like Ingram spark and KDP and like all the, the different sites just to make sure that I'm still in the black. Um, mm -hmm. cause like Ingram doesn't really tell you, like you'll, you'll get an automated email sometimes. Um, but like not all the time, a lot of times it can dip into the red and, and like they don't notify you right away. And if you're not looking at it, you know, you yeah. can end up selling it a bunch you know, at, the, at the wrong price. That's um, one of the reasons why I'm pretty, you know, I, there we're still new. Uh, the DDD print thing is still pretty new and there's there. It's definitely not the best running out there for POD. But, um, you know, I, one of the things I trust about the company, you know, just back me out of it as an author. One of the things I trust about it is um, they are always looking to see. If that's if something's going to hurt you, so if your pricing is too low and it's going to start costing you, you start getting messages about that. And we give the author the option to do it. I mean, some authors are like, "Yeah, fine, I'll pay you know thirty cents a book <laughs> to to sell or whatever." I don't know why you would do that, but if you want to do it, you can do it. But uh, we we alert you. Yeah. Free plug for D to D. I didn't mean it that way, but I'm <laughs> just saying. I like that that feature, and and Ingram should have that feature, and at least Amazon mm -hmm. is letting everyone know <laughs> instead yeah. of just simply raising the the costs. But it is a good point to look at, you know, what's selling in your genre because you know you might think oh nine ninety nine to ten twenty four for the same royalties isn't a big deal, but there's a big uh, psychological difference, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. for someone spending under ten dollars to over ten dollars. So that is something to consider as well. Yeah. I started like years back, I started listing everything at like at 97 cents instead of 99. Um, cause most are, most books are at 99. So if you're at 1097 yeah. instead of 1099, you know, you're, you end up at the top of the list or a lot of lists just because of those couple of pennies. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting tactic. I'll have to experiment with it. I'm yeah. going to do 83 cents. 83. I'll do 82. <laughs> One dollar. One, one okay. Damn you, Parker. <laughs> Next up in the news, uh, the Association of American Publishers met on May 8th and they uh, were just noting some of the publishing industry uh, things that they're grappling with. So uh, these challenges include the book bans, uh, lack of diversity, climate change, copyright issues, and the implications of get ready for those shots, AI. Um, I think that this was just important to be aware of that uh, there is associations that are meeting and talking about these different topics. Uh, really, I didn't see a lot that came out of this as much as it is just people continue to talk about this. This is a continuous rising matter, um, all of these topics. And uh, it's just something for us to be aware of, especially uh, self-pub authors who may not um, necessarily be aware of these. It's interesting to see what's evolving as as the current sort of problems facing the industry. And you know, some of these have been around for a long time, you know, the and you don't often think of like how does it relate like uh climate change for example but you know there's a there's a a climate cost to producing mm -hmm. both paperbacks and ebooks like it, it, it you're not off the hook 
just because you go digital. I mean, there is a, you know, there's still energy costs. Energy has to come from somewhere. And a lot of our energy comes from things that can impact the environment. So, you know, these are questions that have been facing uh, publishing in general for, for decades now. Uh, but it's also sort of coming to the head. And I, for me, it's interesting to note that I believe that AI is somehow a catalyst for making people more aware of some of these issues. Like it's, it's somehow the discussion of AI has dredged up a whole lot of interesting things <laughs> that we have just sort of swept under the rug uh, for a very long time. All right. Last story. I found this story hilarious when I heard about it on TikTok. And then I talked with Christine and decided, uh, why not talk about it here? Uh, so the title is Bigalus Dickalus is more powerful than the Pulitzer Prize. Um, so the sci-fi novella, This is How You Lose the Time War, uh, which was co-authored by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone, saw a huge surge after a tweet from the fan of the anime series Trigun, uh, which was a user known as Bigalus Dickalus Wolfward, uh, urged followers to buy the book. It rose to number three on Amazon's book list, even though this book has been out for several years. Um, this just shows the influence of how like one tweet can just go viral and just wildly out of nowhere. Um, this was a hilarious story to find, and I just wanted to add some levity into the news. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. It's just, it's so <laughs> yes, mind blowing yes, to me, you know, and it, it was just like, you know, I think it was just the, the, that they had a big influence already in anime and just the gen, it was genuine enthusiasm for this book. And I read this book when it came out four years ago. It, um, it was wild. I, I mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. Really fast paced, you know, enemies to lovers, violence, time travel. It's got everything. Um, you know, and I, I met them all at a, at a con and she had great shoes. They were Fluvogs, so that was a bonus. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, it is a great book, but I, I can't believe it went to, to number three. And just, you know, to be clear, this is a novella. So it's a very yeah. short book. Um, so what, what happens after something like that? Like you've been out four years, you've been selling decent, and then all of a sudden you're number three. What do we know about the the person who actually sent the tweet? Like, do we know how many followers they have? Or have any of you actually seen the tweet that, that caused all this? I did see the tweet. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can find them and pull them up. But I know they're, yeah, yeah. I they, mean, they do have a lot the, of influence. And the tweet itself was just. I know they're 22. Just, <laughs> right. And the tweet itself was just like, read this. Don't look anything up about it. Just read it. Hmm. Um, I think that that kind of uh, tweet if you have enough influence behind it can really just cause people to buy stuff. Yeah. I would love to see the faces of the people at like the New York times book review department, you know, like when this <laughs> kind of thing happens, like did, did they yeah. just poke their head out of the glass door and be like, what the yeah. F just happened? Uh, how somebody you explain to this to you. Does, does yeah. that yeah. become a metric? Like, <laughs> all right, this book is looking pretty good. What's the biggest Dickless uh, score for this yeah. book? Is it, yeah. so, where does it come yeah. from? <laughs> So Bigelis has 48.6K uh, <laughs> followers, or 48.6K followers. And um, actually, the New York Times did pick the story up, and they ran it, but they just uh, named him Bigelis, just first name. Bigelis. Cowards. Cowards. They're just on a first name basis. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> How long before this person is doing movie reviews and like actually getting paid for just reviewing stuff? Like that's probably happening now. People are probably throwing yeah. money at them. Like you know, please pimp my my book or my car or my this or my that. Absolutely, uh, you know, like, right? I wouldn't doubt <laughs> it. Right? Yeah, because no, nobody really understands why these things take off in the first place. They just chase them. Yep. Um, the, yeah, the the power of social insane, media, though. kids. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a fun story. Awesome. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie-cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level, so you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. 
Hi, this is J.D. Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. So, JD, who's up this week? Uh, this week, we've got Kate White. She's the former editor of Cosmo and the New York Times bestselling author of nine psychological thrillers, including The Secrets You Keep. Her latest is called Between Two Strangers, and it releases May 16th. Here she is, Kate White. So you have a new book, Between Two Strangers, a psychological thriller about a struggling artist who receives a life-changing inheritance from a man uh, she spent one night with 12 years ago. And she has no idea why she's got this money. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of a fantasy of mine, actually. I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't that be cool? But I just, I was intrigued with that. I actually had a weird thing happen when my mom died, where some of her money went to someone we didn't know who it was who it was. And my brothers and I were really concerned and were so like, did did our mother have somebody in her life that we didn't know about, but it turned out the bank had made an error. And so, but it got me thinking, you know, about inheritance and what if somebody left you money that you didn't know who the person was. And in this case, this struggling artist named Skylar Moore gets left, not just money, she gets left three and a half million dollars. And she is just kind of blown away. And the problem is, the guy's wife is decides to come after it. And she has Skylar has to figure out what is the reason he left her this money. She never spoke to him again after their one night stand 12 and a half, 12 years ago. And as, as it progresses, the stakes become higher and higher for her to find out why he did it. Yeah, they sure do. And it's a great premise. I mean, it just sucks you in immediately because who wouldn't love to be left mystery inheritance money? No, no. Anyone wants to leave me mystery inheritance money, please do. Yeah. We, we can all hope, right, Christine? <laughs> so I have to ask, what would you do with three and a half million dollars? Wow, I think that I would definitely up my bucket list of places to travel to, which is is something so important to me. Tra- I travel, I'm here in Uruguay right now as we're talking, where I live in the winter with my husband, but travel is important. But also, and this might have actually affected me making Skylar a struggling artist. I, I love to collect art and I would probably go after a few pieces that were out of my price range. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So yeah, so you're in Uruguay right now um, yeah. and you love to travel. How does that influence your writing? Like how does living in Uruguay, how does your travel find its way into your books? Well, it so far it really hasn't, but Uruguay is a great place for me to write. When I was in the magazine business, I ran Cosmopolitan for many years. I had a fantasy of being able to be my own boss. I think as so many writers, you're all about writers, you know, the big fantasy, you know, I'm not going to be talking to the man. And I had fabulous bosses when I ran Cosmo, but I wanted to be my own boss. So we bought this little place in Uruguay on the beach and decided that as soon as I left Cosmo, we would come down here and and live. And I don't know why, but I write better in the heat. And the weird thing is, when I did a DNA test a number of years ago, even though I'm mostly kind of Scottish, Finnish, and Irish, and English descent, a little part of me came from Paraguay. So I'm thinking <laughs> maybe in another life I lived here. And and so I, I just find it a really tranquil, relaxing place to to work. And but my book, the one I'm going to do after the one I hand in, is going to have a little scene in Uruguay. Finally, my agent will okay. be into it. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think you know, I wonder if it's just a mood thing too, because I find I write better, you know, spring, summer winter forget about it like there are a couple months there when the writing is is just hard so i wonder if if the sunshine and the weather are ah. conducive to good writing 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's not just the heat, but it's the sun. What do you do then in the winter when you can't write? How do you? I, mean, I grumble. And- I do it anyways, but I'm not happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You would think that you know, in the summer we'd be sort of like, no, I want to be outside and and play with the other kids. But I, I just love writing when it's hot. Yeah. Same. And I think that is the dream. I bet uh, a lot of writers, if they got three and a half million dollars, those of us with day jobs would be out and being our own boss somewhere warm. So I love that. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting as we're just talking about that. I, I struggled when I was first trying to write fiction. I'd written a couple nonfiction books watching, you know, Law and Order in the background late at night when the kids and my husband were in bed. But, but with fiction, I, I I really struggled at first. And a lot of it for me was figuring out when I wrote best and how I wrote best. And so it wasn't just heat. I discovered that even though I was a night owl, I wrote fiction best in the morning, which was kind of scary because <laughs> okay, you're going to go to bed late, you're going to get up early. But it, that made a huge difference. And, and really, a lot of it is just finding that that writer's cocktail, what yeah. works best for you. I might have to try that because I'm a night person too. So maybe I'll write better in the morning. Maybe I'll give it a shot. It's worth experimenting for sure. I love that. And you've written what, 17 novels now? Is that where somewhere around there, depending how you count them? Yeah, 18 if I count the one that I'm just closing in on finishing for 2024. Oh my goodness. And, uh, then four or five nonfiction. But I, I, I have to say, I, if I had to choose, I would pick fiction so much because not only do I enjoy it uh, most days, I mean, it's hard. It really is, as we all know, but it it's also a great stress reliever for me. I, I find that, that I lose myself in my characters and the plot when other things are, are, you know, bothering me in some ways. So, um, you know, that's, that's, it's been great for me in that regard. Nice. So I'm curious, the hardest part for me is always getting started on a new book and you've been started on so many of them. What does your pre-novel sort of brainstorming process look like before you start a new book? Oh, uh, that is, that's actually the easier part for me, landing the freaking plane at the end. <laughs> uh, when I almost use the F word. It is <laughs> that's all right. We, we don't mind. We're an adult yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is the hardest part. In the beginning, I love it. But the tricky thing for me, because as a thriller writer, I do a book a year, is that I need more than a year to do a book. I need about three months to work the plot out in my head. So what I'm generally doing is as I'm finishing up one, I've got the other one going. And I've had a new agent for the last four or five years, and I had to have her understand this. I can't just, you know, hit the, you know, get off the dime cold cold. I I need to have had a few months to think about it. So what I usually do is when I'm in the shower, I start thinking about it when I take walks. I do that what if game that you hear so many authors talk about where maybe there'll be a little germ and I'll be, you know, what if this happened? What if that? And then I, I always know right before I start who the killer is, why they killed, and I also know how I'm going to try to hide that. So then I I don't plot out the whole book, but I, I, I know those things. And then I plot out about four chapters at a time using a notebook. And the, the notebook also serves the purpose in those three months before I start writing of me writing questions to myself and a, a, an incredible woman named Laura Day, who wrote a book on practical intuition, we interviewed her once when I was in the magazine business. And she said, when you don't have the answer to creative question, put it out to the universe, like, well, why would the person do that in this book? And I write those questions in the notebook. And it is really weird. It is spooky that (laughs) there sometimes they come, the answers come even as you're writing the question. So that helps me get everything going. So then when I sit down to write, I, I've got that to work with. 
That's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to try that for sure. Cause I've heard people talk about that, you know, with your intentions, if you write them down in a notebook, they're going to happen. I've never tried that with writing. I think that's fantastic. So you sort of do like a loose global outline, kind of know all the major pieces and then do more detailed outlines chapter by chapter as you go along. Yes. Of four chapters at a time. Yeah. I make a grid on a page of a notebook and that helps me also think about how I want to do more cliffhanger chapter endings. I once interviewed Laura Lipman, and she called it the distant shore approach, where she follows the same thing, where she knows where she's going, but it's like this lake or river you're swimming across. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Locked monsters like, <laughs> in the middle of that lake. But I I don't think I totally appreciated uh, for a few years into writing fiction, how that part was so magical because you're writing and you don't have everything planned out. And all of a sudden this idea comes to you, like you discover something about a character you didn't know that your brain just decides to tell you. And to me, that is the truly fun, incredible part of writing. And that's why I wouldn't want to plot it out so completely in advance. Do you, yeah. Are you a plotter? I am a plotter. And yeah, I kind of do the same thing, you know, um, do the global outline. So I know where I'm going. I have my roadmap or my, my swimming line across the lake. I know where I'm going. But yeah, I think you need some room for like creativity and, and play inside the constraints you set yourself. So I think that works really well. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be doing a program for fiction writers, thriller writers. And one of the things I am encouraging anyone who's, I mean, it's for beginning authors. In the beginning, don't be a pantser, you know, be a plotter. That there are people like Lisa Unger, who's a really wonderful friend of mine, who just lets her characters take her wherever they go. And she is not a plotter. But I think when you're first starting out, it's so much better to do a certain amount of plotting or you'll get yourself boxed into a corner. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And I have a little, a little bit more uh, questions about your plot specifically to this book. So in between uh, two strangers, Skylar unravels this mystery often by uncovering memories, which are overshadowed by this traumatic event. Um, what are the challenges when you're writing clues that way versus chasing them down on the street? Was that difficult? Is that, I'd love to hear more about how you did that. Well, it was different because in my mystery series, it's about a, a girl named Bailey Weggins, who's a true crime reporter. And so she's the, almost like a gumshoe, you know, she's out yeah. there, she's pestering people, she's asking stupid questions, sometimes purposely, she's just sticking her nose where it shouldn't be. But with Skylar, uh, she needs to figure out why the guy left her this this money and there aren't there aren't that many avenues for her to go down. She does approach the mother. She approaches the lawyer who set set this thing up, who set it up so she would be assigned this trust. And they they tell her they don't know. So there aren't too many ways she could do it by pounding the pavements or doing a Google search. So she's left with really trying to understand how what is there anything that night they spent together that would have left a clue that he was going to do this? And I did do some research into memories. And in her case, it's not so much recovered memory because it's more because her sister ended up dying that same weekend. She doesn't like to think about the, the one night stand because it reminds her of her sister so she just really tries to peel back some layers. And one of the things she does, because she's a collage artist, she ends up deciding to create a collage where she she goes to the hotel they stayed at uh, online and she prints out some pictures from it. She, she writes words about this game they played, two truths and a lie. She, she starts making a collage of all these elements. And, and sometimes things like songs can trigger 
a memory that you forgot about. So for her, because she's a visual person, she's hoping this will trigger it. And she does begin to have little snippets, flashbacks of things he said, things they talked about. But ultimately, it's something someone says about the collage that gets her thinking and ultimately comes to the truth. Because really, digging deep into your trying to find memories that you haven't thought of for a long time is challenging. And she's not going to have some huge breakthrough. Oh, my God, I remember that night. But she remembers snippets, but and ultimately doing the collage does lead her to the discovery. Yeah, I really like it was just so um, interesting because I mean, it's not like it's never been done before, but the way that she just uncovered it. I was like, this is great because it's very internal. Uh, you know, a lot of the tension is internal because she just can't deal with going back to that memory because of the trauma that happened to her. And I, I thought the visual was just Fantastic. Um, just as we were talking, it reminded me like of uh, Ray Bradbury said that, you know, when he wrote stories, he used to go back to the where those events had occurred, childhood places, stand there, uh, and yeah. those events would kind of come up. And I really like that it, it escalated that way for her having to get closer to that memory and closer to that trauma that she'd been avoiding. So it was a lot of yeah. fun for me to read that. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning, she doesn't do that. She is trying to ask some questions and I originally had her, because this is the Kate White way, making little notes. And then I realized, well, no, she's an artist. She would maybe try to do it visually. Mm -hmm. And it was fun for me to, to do a little bit about the art world, too. I Most of my protagonists, I've tried to have their professions be close to something I would know like the true crime writer. I had somebody who uh, wrote celebrity biography. This is the first time I had a far afield from me. And yet I love art and I, I'm a huge art viewer, gallery, you know, uh, uh, a gallery person just traveling around galleries on weekends and museums and when we travel, my poor husband, every music. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I want to ask a little bit more about um, the crimes and murders in your book. How do you go about doing your research um, to make it realistic, to make those kind of things happen? What type of research do you do when you're writing? I do do research and I'm sure I make mistakes and readers are very forgiving. I think they probably feel like I know as I'm a reader and I'm reading stuff, I sometimes think it sounds like she spoke to the police, but if she didn't, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm reading along. I, I like it. I Years ago, I met this fabulous woman for my very first book that I was researching. A cop in New York told me about her and her name is Barbara Butcher. And she worked in the ME's office for many years in New York. And she was at over 5,000 death scenes. Not all of them are mur were murders, but yeah. you would go in the place of the medical examiner and examiner and try to determine cause of death. She and I became really good friends. And I encouraged her to write a book. And her book is coming out in June. And it's really great. It's a memoir. Wow. And it's it's called uh, What the Dead Know, and it's about her life uh, as, a, as a death scene investigator, but also a lot about her life personally, coming to terms with being gay, coming to terms with, uh, um, you know, being an alcoholic. So it's very, very moving, but woven in is all this great stuff about being a uh, uh, an investigator. She helps me with every single book, every, everything. I can just call her up saying if, if somebody was slashed from behind, you know, what would it look like? And when I was at Cosmo, I remember one time I was in a meeting and she had sent me some color photographs of, of someone's neck being slashed and then bleeding out. And I opened a folder in this big <laughs> meeting with corporate and there's just oh, no. a guy with like a gaping gaping hole in his neck. And then up with police, I've met a few police people over time who uh, 
police personnel who I go back to again and again. But one of the things lately, I needed to talk to somebody for this book in New York City. And I was just told, no, we don't do that. Uh, we don't have the time. And But I'm sure if it was Michael Conley calling up her lead child, they would, but little old me, no. So what I over time, I got to know different um, detectives and police personnel in other locations. And certain things generally apply overall. Mm -hmm. They're very helpful to me. And one of my best pals in New York was a neighbor who is a top defense lawyer. And I just take her out to expensive lunches every <laughs> few months, and then I could call her about everything. But I would advise anybody, it really does help if you get to know people. And most people are very giving. And the great thing about doing research is that you often come up with plot twists because someone will tell you something that you think you're just trying to make sure you're doing your getting your facts correct. And then they'll sometimes say something that you realize that is a great little thing I'm going to include as a turning point in the book. Oh, I like that. Is that, um, do you have other ways that you come up with plot twists or is the expert uh, suggestion like kind of the main one or how do you write fantastic plot twists or is so it just your brain kind of working on it? Yeah, um, a lot of authors say, oh, I thought of it in my sleep or I did, you know, I, I, I don't know how I did it. But I think if you reverse engineer that, you see that a lot of that that I think is sometimes even playing with like polar opposites. You know, the husband is almost always the person who kills the wife. But but what if he isn't? Uh, it's like that Agatha Christie mystery. No spoiler alert here. What is it? The Roger Ackroyd or whatever his name is. You know, she must have said to herself one day, "What if the protagonist writing about how they're trying to figure out who the killer is actually the killer?" So sometimes it's just good to play that game. Start with something and go through it and just do the opposite too. And more and more, because today, I don't know how you feel. I'd love your thought on this. Some some twists are so bizarre. I feel like it's jumping the shark, like that old line from TV where you're just yeah. like, oh no, please. I, I, I don't believe it. I, I read a book lately where the woman had not just one serial killer in her life, she had two and it just drains the credibility. So I more and more I try to have the characters drive the twist because of their personalities. I think, what is there about this person? What would they do in this moment? Get back to the character, not just let my mind think of a plot twist, but what would the character do? So then it, it sounds more authentic to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, yeah, when you get those plot twists and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Why? Uh, have oh, you okay. felt that too? Yeah, there have been books that I've read and I'm like, I don't understand how this is related to the rest of the book. So. Yeah, or it's just so outrageous. Out there. And it, yeah, it yeah. kind of feels like deus ex machina or something. And you're like, what? Yeah. Where did this person, or you haven't seen that character before? And it's just like, it is. Hmm. It's all deus ex machina. <laughs> I just read the new Jane Harper Exiles, which is a police procedural. And I really loved it. She, to me, she's a great writer. I didn't love her last book as much as the others, but this one was so good. And the twist is just so authentic and believable. And you probably could have thought of it yourself. There's certain things in there that you would lead you to possibly have this assumption. Just so, so good clues that all make sense. And the and and this happening made sense too. And you're just like, thank you, Jane. I don't know you, Jane. I wish I did, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jane, if you're listening. <laughs> Give us a call. Kate wants to talk to you. <laughs> I, I want to be your best friend. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> um, that's awesome. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about the food in your novels. Like you have very detailed use of food. Um, and I know you previously edited a, a Mystery Writers of America cookbook. Um, 
Is this something that just happens naturally or what role does food play in your novels? It is so funny you say that because when I was asked to do the Mystery Writers of America cookbook, the guy who called me up from the committee and asked me to do it said that somebody on the committee, Frankie Bailey, who is a professor of, uh, I think, law and also maybe covers forensics at State University of New York at Albany, I think is where she, she was. He said, she said, oh, we should get Kate White to do it. Not only was she an editor-in-chief, but she's got all this food in her books. And it hadn't even occurred to me. <laughs> but I guess, you know, I love to eat. I do like to cook. I'm not a great cook, but I will follow recipes. And I and I, I like to think, Christine, I set a cute table, which I used to try to make up for the fact that I'm not a great cook. <laughs> but I realize I just, I can't um, not included a, it's just part of who I am now a couple of books ago I started trying to do it a little less because I was doing it so much and my editor who I've had now for about five or six books she's really great one day she said to me well when did they eat <laughs> and I said oh well, I'm trying to play down you know the the eating so much she goes um well I'm getting hungry so that was back writing about food yeah, I loved it. I noticed it in, in uh, Between Two Strangers as well. I was like, oh, that dish sounds really good. And I'm like, I'm going to look that up. Maybe I'll eat that. I can find the recipe. Yeah. Oh. So Skylar, she lives alone and she's a little curmudgeon -y, And so she's not much in terms of the, the food stuff. Uh, so, uh, but in other books, if they've, if they've been in a certain setting, like in the book I wrote a couple of books ago, The Fiance, she's staying, the, the main character is staying with her in-laws and they have this big estate and they're there, every meal is prepared by someone, but it's all sort of in this great setting, done kind of family style, casual. So that was fun for me because I got to mention a lot of dishes. That's awesome. Um you also do Zooms with book clubs. What's that like? Book clubs can be wild. Like, do you have any good stories about doing Zoom book clubs? <laughs> oh, the thing about Zoom book clubs is that one of the things I found is that people seem a little tongue-tied. I don't know if this is anything that rings a bell for you, but what happens is that the, the person who's running it asks a couple of questions and then Nobody asks a question. And it to me, sometimes it kind of feels a little flat towards the end. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, but the funniest thing that ever happened during during the pandemic where, where people were just really experimenting with Zoom, this one woman said to me, I've done something a little different. I'm using stadium seating. And we're all going to be in seats and that way it'll just be a little bit better. And then we won't have to have, you won't have to wonder who the people you don't see on screen are. But the problem is everybody, it was so weird. Everybody was in the seat and they had this little body and then their head was on it. And my head was the same size as everybody else's. So when I was speaking, I couldn't even tell it was me because all the heads were the same size. It was so disconcerting. So I hope no one ever does that again. Oh my goodness. What do you think of book clubs? Do you think it's an effective way for authors to to do it? I, I find talking at a library so much more effective. Yeah. What do you think? I, I don't know. Like I, I've been in a couple of book clubs and I'm like, sometimes we read the books, mostly we just drink the wine. So it's like, yeah. and then they ask you questions and you're like, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I find them often they're a bit more social. Whereas I think people coming to the library are actually really interested in, in the books and, and the craft and that type of thing. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it that with a library, everyone has come because they're interested in you, yeah. even if they haven't read the last book or they're interested in becoming an author. Mm -hmm. With book clubs, there's a chance half the people haven't read it or are interested in you. So then you're fighting that kind of inertia that comes from that. 
Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, I just have one final question that we ask everyone. Uh, if you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring writers, what would it be? I think if I could just say one piece of advice is is something that helped me a lot. When I first started trying to write, I didn't write. I couldn't write. I was a procrastinator. And every panel I went to, there would be some pompous author that said, if you're not writing, it means you don't want to be a writer. But I really think for me, it came down to I hadn't found the right genre. I didn't know my writer's cocktail when I could write um, what was the best time. And I didn't know that for me, because I was a procrastinator, the best thing for me was not to bite off more than I could chew, but just start by writing 15 minutes a day. Get a timer, set it for 15 minutes. Don't bite off more than you can chew because just because you're not writing regularly, I believe doesn't mean you don't want to be a writer. Absolutely. And I think you call that slice the salami. Did I see that somewhere? Yeah, slice slice the salami. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what a time management guy called it. Just write in smaller segments and build up from there. Because to say I'm going to write for the whole day is just too much for even me today. This episode is brought to you by Master Writer. Master Writer is a powerful collection of writing tools and references assembled in one easy to use program. Included are word families, phrases, synonyms, rhymes, definitions, figures of speech, pop culture, a searchable Bible of intensifiers, and a unique collection of intense descriptive words. Why struggle to find the right word when you can have all the possibilities in an instant? While a computer can't compete with the mind and imagination of a writer, the mind can't compete with the word choices that Master Writer will give you in an instant. When the two work together, great things happen. Check it out today at masterwriter.com. Okay, so this was just such a fun book, so much like a uh, wish fulfillment. And I'm just curious, have you ever received anything unexpected that has uh, affected your life in any way? I'd love to hear about it. JP is not in. Go, JP. Such as a <laughs> review from Bigless Dickless. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected uh, bills. You know what? Yeah, I, I don't want to get back on that, but I saw Amal's <laughs> tweet in response, who was one of the writers, and she was just like, I don't understand what is happening, but I'm very grateful to Big List Dickless. So. But, but thank you for my new house. <laughs> Wild. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So the inheritance story is kind of funny. Uh, nowhere near millions at all. But uh, I did have a great uncle who I inherited something from and I very unexpected um, out of left field. I was just graduating college and I made some poor mistakes about investing in college and this was like random moment of like divinity and I was very uh, pleased with it because I would have been screwed. Um, but yeah, uh, I've had that happen before. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've ever actually been in somebody's will. I guess that, that speaks to my character. Nobody actually puts me in. <laughs> it, it, it makes me think we, this should be a trend. Um, you know, this isn't what happened in the book, but like maybe we should all just start picking like some random person like out of the phone book or off the internet and just slap them in our will just for the hell of it. Just, yeah. I like you know, why, why not? Yeah, why not? You know, yeah. I like that's um, a kind of the kind of like a pay it forward kind of. Uh, scenario that that's going to make a great book, JD. Thanks. I'm, I'm <laughs> you, I've already started you, outlining that. I don't think my children I mean, would just, appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> hey, mom, did you know how come you're I'm not in your will? Well, I thought I'd just give all the money to too. Bad. Right. He didn't say Sorry, exclude you know. your children, he just said add this person. <laughs> well, I mean, well, in, Kate, I in Kate's book, random. it's it's in Kate's book, it's a fantastic hook because this woman yeah. sleeps with this guy one time 12 years ago and ends up inheriting millions of dollars. Um, you know, first of all, you know, she must be phenomenal in the bedroom, you know, yeah. for that, for that to happen. There, there's something going on, but like she, she dragged, you know, like the whole book, you're like, you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the why? Um, and she keeps it going, you know, cause it's, it's not, and that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. No, and I can't even get people to review my books on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a fun story like that. I, when I was a rookie cop, we got assigned to go to a funeral. And we're like, well, what's the circumstances? There was an older gentleman. He's probably in his well, late 70s, early 80s, worked in a factory all his life, passed away. Well, before he passed away, he met a younger gal 
he was like in his mid seventies, whatever it was. And she was in her mid twenties and he wound up dumping his wife of like 40 years or whatever like that for the younger gal. And he had two or three kids and he saved all of his money, all of his life. He was, he was a saver and he had a substantial amount of cash and a house and he wrote everybody out of the will except for this young gal that he met like six months before he died. So there was all kinds of threats about dismembering the body at the funeral. They said they were going to cut him up. So I had the head. I'm standing in attention at the head of the casket. And another cop is at the foot of the casket. And everyone's going by to say their final goodbyes. And I'm expecting somebody's going to come out with a butcher knife and just start going to town. And I'm like... Well, the person's already dead. They're not really killing him, you know? And I'm just like, oh, my God. I'm like, please, let just let nothing like that happen. So it went off without a, a hitch, but it was very odd, and there was a lot of hard feelings there. There was a lot of angry Way, way to turn the whole thing dark, Patrick. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's my life, Kevin. It's very dark. <laughs> well, I think that you know, the older man, younger woman, like that. that's a fairly common – you know, thing. I mean, that happens pretty often. I, I think what the reason it was unique for Kate's story is, you know, this was, you know, she met this guy in a bar and like they just hooked up the one time that right. was it. No contact afterwards. Um, that's, that's what makes it intriguing because you, you know, you start looking around, you know, like beyond the obvious trying to figure out why. Um, and again, yeah. she does a great job of, of, you know, filtering that information out there and keeping the, the, the twist coming. It's like the opposite of fatal attraction. Like, yeah. If you were to invert fatal attraction, this is the story. So, yeah, she's she really likes to include her interests like food and art. I don't know. Do you include stuff like that in your novels, like highly specific interests and cool ways? What have you done with yeah. that? I mean, in, in her book, I literally got hungry, like reading that book because she goes there you know, and she's very good at describing the, the food. You, you have to be very careful with it, though. I've, I've got a mentoring student that I'm working with right now. Um, and I, like if, if I had to guess, maybe 20 to 30 different things take place over dinner. You know, like, you know, information is revealed, like, you know, they, they go yeah. to this place and they have dinner, they go here and they, or, or they eat lunch, but like they're all over meals and the conversations between the characters are all happening while they're eating. Um, you have to change it up. You know, like you can't, you can't, you can maybe have one conversation that takes place over dinner. Um, you know, one thought that maybe comes to the character while they're in the shower. That was the other thing in this particular book. She's got this, this character showering, you know, like constantly through the book which i guess you know it's obviously a real thing but you know you, you can't play out the whole story that way so it's like mm -hmm. i think it's important to try and piece those kind of things out the mundane stuff you know you can mention it once maybe twice but that's it you know change up your, your locations too i mean I, I see a lot of people you know where the book you know like the character will run off do something come back to you know point a and then they go off and do something else come back to point a and like that to me slows the story down it, you know if you can get them to go someplace different every single time keep it fresh you know that keeps the pacing up they go to a, a different restaurant, a <laughs> yeah. second cafe. Something. They go inside instead of the drive-thru. Something. Yeah, that's a really good point. There is something to be said for looking at um, if you have too many of the scene, same scene types, like we call that the mm -hmm. chatting over coffee scene or eating dinner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can give that information a different way, like pairing up with walking, walking through somewhere new while you're seeing things. But, yeah, too many chatting over coffee scenes can get a little... A little uh, tired. <laughs> yeah, a lot of authors sure. do that with meetings too. You know, like certain yeah. types of book, like Tom Clancy, Clancy yeah. type stories. You know, they'll have fifty meetings throughout that book. Um, yeah. And you know, if you break it down, you know, just look at the information that's actually exchanged in that meeting. You know, that it could just as easily happen here or there or this place or that place. It doesn't have to be around a conference table. Um, yeah. and I, I think it's important to change that up. I do admit to there being a lot of uh, coffee shop slash cafes in my books and a lot of um, conference rooms uh, because of the FBI angle. So something to watch out for, but well, I, I don't, I feel like I don't overdo it, but I'll let, I'll let readers be the judge. Well, I me. did include a chicken fettuccine <laughs> Alfredo recipe in one of my books and it did impress the heck out of a date. I, I don't I doubt that. This. And I put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> good so we can learn how to make your your uh chicken fettuccine alfredo yes from and your, it's from not even close to being healthy just so you know <laughs> doesn't need to not be. even close perfect but for a the, murder mystery yes but with the price of butter you, you know what you're right i'm crying <laughs> as i'm putting those sticks of butter in there no 
<laughs> Somewhere around the twelfth stick of butter, I thought perhaps I'm overdoing it. <laughs> perhaps my mortgage won't be paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's cereal tomorrow, kids. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I thought that was interesting is you know we were talking about weather. Like Kate writes better when it's hot and it's sunny. Does that affect your writing at all? Have you ever noticed? Mm. I never really thought about that, but I'm like, yeah, I'm way more miserable miserable when it's gray and cold. <laughs> And you live in Canada, so it's, it's cold and, and miserable like the there all the time. The, national, <laughs> the official national weather of Canada is gray and cold. Exactly. <laughs> it, it feels like like the heat. Like she, where did she say she was? In, She's in, in Uruguay. Uruguay. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like that just seems muggy and stuffy. Like you would yeah. want to just lay around and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know that I could get anything done there. Um, I'm I'm very horrible with it. Like I'm, I've got an air conditioner in my office, one of those split units. It's always 72 degrees in here. It doesn't matter if it's negative five outside or yeah. or 85 or 105. You know, so I, I I don't I don't change that up. Um, I, I can tell you, like when we first moved into the, you know, we had that duplex in Pittsburgh. There was no air conditioning in there, uh, mm-hmm. and the temperature would fluctuate anywhere from like 50 degrees in the morning to like 80 degrees at night. And like, oh. yeah, there were certain times of the day where I couldn't write. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a thing. Yeah, if I didn't write when it was hot and humid outside, I would literally never write in Texas. So I, <laughs> yeah, I have air conditioning going all, at all times. Texas. Yeah, I mean, it can get bad. You know, you don't do a lot. There's not a lot of that, like, sitting in a cafe outside writing in, in this area. But um, you better in the, Austin than in Houston, The 10 sure, showers? It, so do all your characters yeah. take 10 showers because they're in? All my characters, yeah, they're <laughs> perpetually wet. Right, uh, right before dinner, they take a shower. Yeah, yeah. I exactly. wouldn't blink. They're like gorging on it. You know, they have dinner in the shower, Alfredo. Kevin. Is that what's going on? <laughs> oh, no. no, no, no. I do have um, someone gave me one of those uh, cup holders for the shower. So you can put your beer in the, uh, you know, hang it from the from the glass of your shower. <laughs> Is that a real problem for you, Kevin? Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't. I thought it was like, Kevin. Really? I, I use it for coffee. I'm not a beer guy, so I, you know, I put my coffee in there. So. <laughs> I'm never six feet away from a, a firearm in my house, and you got to have a beer within six feet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not <laughs> a same beer thing guy. for me, man. Yeah, you're not a beer guy because you live somewhere warm and sunny. So if you come up to the cold and gray, I'll make you a beer guy. So come on. <laughs> That's what every Canadian tells me. I, 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 that would be an interesting experiment to see if that panned out. You and, and uh, Mark Lefave uh, both want to get me. Uh, addicted to beer, but I'm yeah. a straight up coffee guy with bourbon. We can do it together. You can come out with Mark and I in a skeleton and we'll sit around and have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the other thing that Kate was talking about that I, I hadn't really thought about was uh, book clubs because, you know, they do tend to be kind of more social. So I'm wondering, like, what experiences have you had with uh, book clubs? Do you find libraries are better? Do you find you engage uh, readers more somewhere else? What do you think about that? Personally, I love book clubs. Um, I forget who it, another author turned me on to them. Um, so I basically started including book club questions in every one of my books at the back. Um, mm-hmm. If you go to my website, there's a web page um, specific to book clubs where you can download those questions. And I find that just by having that out there available on the web, book clubs find it. Um, then they, you know, and they buy your books in mass. You know, they're buying 10, 20, 50 copies, you know, all in one shot when the club decides they want to read it. Um, and now with Zoom, like it's it's crazy easy. You know, like they basically just book an appointment with me. We we set up a Zoom call and I spend 30 minutes or an hour, you know, talking to these people. And, you know, that's it. I, I, I prefer that over the libraries and, and even the bookstore talks only because there's travel involved. It's, you know, for one or two events a day, if you're lucky, or if you do it with one of the publishers and you know, they load you in a car and they just take you from one to the next, to the next, to the next, which is, it's tiring. Um, but you, you can't fit in as, as many of them as you can if you're, if you're doing it over zoom. Um, but they do talk up your book, you know, like if, if, you know, you've got the club buying your book and reading it and if they like it, each of those people run out and they tell three to 10 other people about it and it keeps it going. Yeah. You've mentioned that, that strategy before. I really think that's a, a brilliant thing and I keep meaning to do that. And I, that's an example of something I think AI would be really handy for <laughs> It's to just, yeah. you know, I just have to, they have to come up with a way for us to be able to feed an entire book into one of these things though. So far that's, that's not a thing. Now, JD, do you, do you put these questions just at the end of your book or at the end of every chapter? No, it's at the end of the book. How many questions about? Uh, 20 to 25. Okay. Yeah, because the, the questions themselves, a lot of times have spoilers in them. You know, so you have to be oh, careful sure, where, sure. You, where you put those out. Um, you know, if, if you do have spoilers, make sure you have something at the very top to let people know there's a spoiler, you know, somewhere down below. 
when you found out that the murderer was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a great idea. You know, something else she mentioned is to, to keep the plot twist twisty but realistic. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really important too yeah. because I, I've noticed, you know, lately that books tend to fall on, you know, one end of the spectrum or the other. Either the twist is just something you've seen five million times and you can see it coming um, or it's something that's just so outlandish. It doesn't even make sense for that particular book. Um, yeah. and, and you know, this person had it on like on a post-it note on, on their computer monitor and they're like, Oh, I get that, write that twist in another 22 pages. Like they were excited about it. They thought it was a good idea. Um, but it's just so far out of left field. It just, it doesn't make sense. So like they, they have to be realistic. Yeah. So I don't, is there anything else you think that writers can do wrong with their plot twists other than not making them realistic? I, I think you have to, it has to play out. You know, like I've, I've seen some good twists too, where the twist comes along and I'm like, that, that was, that was solid, but like it never actually, you know feeds you know feels part of the story like it's just it's a twist that was put in for it just to have the sake of having a twist um but they don't play it out far enough or they don't actually answer it or justify having it there um so it's got to be fulfilling at the same time yeah Cool. All right. So, J.D., who's up next week? Next week, we've got T.J. Newman coming back. She's a New York Times bestseller of Fallen. Um, she was on once before. And you may want to check out that interview if you, if you haven't heard it yet. Um, she was a former flight attendant. She essentially wrote Fallen while standing at the back of the plane while working um, you know, on, on notepads because they're not allowed to use phones. And then she had to go home and transcribe it. She sold this book for multiple seven-figure deals. Uh, she got seven figures in the U.S., another seven figures overseas, and a seven-figure film deal. Um, so she's back with her sophomore effort. It's called Drowning, and it releases May 30th. So she's going to tell us all about it. All right. Sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Do you want to write crime stories that are accurate and believable, but lack firsthand experience in law enforcement? Join CopCamp, the Cops and Writers interactive conference, and experience what real-life police officers and detectives do through hands-on activities this June 1st through the 4th at the Fox Valley Police Academy in Appleton, Wisconsin. Limited class size of 30 to 40 students ensures an immersive, interactive experience. Attend firearm simulations, drive a squad car, solve mock crime scenes, and use real CSI tools and more. Register now at premeditatedfiction.com forward slash copcamp2023 and take your crime writing to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.